Well, again, I'm so glad to be with you here this evening. It's so good to be back to normal, back to the routine. Our lives, Kim and I, we've literally been all over the map this year, all kinds of things going on. And I think our travels are finally over, uh, Lord willing. So it's just good to get back and, and be on a routine. And I'm so excited to begin a verse-by-verse study on Wednesday nights in this very important book that we call Galatians. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians, page 1,337, if you're using a Bible under the seat in front of you. And uh, if you're bringing your Bible, which I hope you do, uh, go ahead and put a bookmark there, and we're going to be in the book of Galatians for several weeks on Wednesday nights. Galatians chapter 1. Lord Jesus, as we just sang, you are a good and gracious king. You are merciful and loving. Your grace abounds. You bless your people. Salvation is so wonderful. Lord, protect what you've done from being becoming twisted in our minds. Pray that we would see so clearly what you've done, who you are, and we'd see that daily. I pray your blessing upon this study tonight, upon your word. Touch our hearts. Speak to each one of us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So about 2,000 years ago, 48 AD, Paul the Apostle wrote this letter that we're going to study to a group of local churches in a region that was known as Galatia, hence this book's title, Galatians. This is the earliest letter that Paul wrote, recorded in the New Testament. It's his first letter. It's actually the second earliest letter in the New Testament. Only James was written before this letter, 48 AD. Think of it, that's 18 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus or so, right around that time. This letter was an emergency letter. Paul wrote this letter with urgency, and it was of utmost importance to Christians in his day. And 2,000 years later, it still remains a letter of utmost importance to Christians. This is one of those books in the Bible that every single born-again Christian should have a marvelous handle on. So let's begin. Let's look at the greeting with me tonight. Look how Paul begins the letter. In verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man. But through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me. To the churches. Plural. 
of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, Paul, the apostle, wrote this letter. This is his first letter. And it's really, really important that we remember Paul's story and keep his story in your mind as you study this letter. Before Paul became the Apostle Paul, we knew him as Saul of Tarsus. Saul was born and raised in a city called Tarsus, not in the Jerusalem area. He was born into a devout Jewish family. He was a full-blooded Jew. His mother was full-blooded Hebrew. His father was full-blooded Hebrew. In fact, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. Their family could trace their lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's family, or Saul's family, as he was called at his birth, was rigidly observant of the law of Moses. They observed all of the Old Testament traditions, though they didn't live anywhere near Jerusalem. They did the kosher diet, the synagogue, the Sabbath, all the different traditions. That was all Saul knew growing up, the law of Moses, Judaism. Saul was a brilliant man, absolutely brilliant a great intellect. He came to be completely fluent in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. He was proficient in Roman culture, Greek culture, and of course, Hebrew culture. And he grew up to become literally a religious prodigy within Judaism. On his eighth day of life, He was circumcised in the temple courts in Jerusalem as every Jewish male was required under the law. At age five, that would be what? Kindergarten, right? He began reading scripture in Hebrew. At age five, he memorized Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, which is known as the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. He memorized that in Hebrew. He also memorized Psalms 113 through 118, all by memory, all of that at age five. Boy, we should do that with our kindergartners, don't you think? By age six, he attended a rabbinical school in a neighboring community. At age 10, he was instructed in Torah, which is the written law, and also the oral law. At age 14, he became a son of the law. He went through his bar mitzvah. Late teens, Paul moved from Tarsus to the city of Jerusalem and lived with his sister's family. And there, according to Acts chapter 22, we know that he studied under the premier rabbi of the day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel in Jerusalem studied 
with him for many, many years. He had the best rabbinical teacher from his late teens all the way up to his mid-20s, even close to 30. Think of all the training he received. Eventually, Saul became one of the 6,000 Pharisees. Now, there were several million in the population of Israel. Only 6,000 were Pharisees. The strictest, most religious, elite group. Paul was one of 6,000, and of course, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Eventually, he became a member of the Sanhedrin Council, which is the top 70. Part of like the Jewish religious law Supreme Court. One of 70. So, Saul of Tarsus reached the highest echelon of Judaism. He's the most religious man you can possibly imagine. A defender of the Jewish law. Zealous for the Jewish law. Now, you would think if a guy were that religious, he might be a nice dude. You'd think, you know, more religious, the more kinder you are. But actually, when we meet Saul of Tarsus in the pages of Scripture, he was a monster. A religious, zealot monster. When we meet Saul of Tarsus in the New Testament... He is the chief persecutor of the early church. See, he's all, he's religious. He's part of the Jewish law system. And as you know, Jesus came on the scene, developed quite a following. Jesus was crucified on the cross, rose again the third day. The church was born and all of the Early church leaders were running all over the place talking about Jesus raised from the dead. And all of these people were becoming members of this strange thing called the church. And most all of those early Christians were Jews. They came out of Judaism. Paul, or Saul, found that to be the biggest threat to his religion. And so he began to persecute the church. Acts chapter 8 says Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. You see that word, to make havoc? It's the same language in the Greek that speaks of what a wild beast does to its prey. It rips it apart, bloodies it. That's what Saul of Tarsus was attempting to do with the early church. Rip it to shreds. Going house to house, dragging off men and women, committing them to to prisons. Acts chapter 9 says that Saul was breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. It literally reads in the Greek, he was breathing in. Threats and murders. Threatening and slaughter had become the very breath that Saul breathed, like a war horse who sniffed the smell of battle. That's Saul of Tarsus, hunting Christians. 
doing everything in his power to destroy the early church, to destroy Christianity. And he did it thinking that he was obeying the Lord, that he was doing God a favor, that he was protecting his precious Judaistic law and religion. Absolutely sincere, absolutely zealous, but sincerely wrong, right? You know, isn't it interesting how people who can be very religious and zealous about something can be absolutely wrong? And yet in their minds, they think they're doing everything just right. That can happen with people. It happened with Saul. Well, Saul was an absolute monster. Nobody, no Christian would have anything to do with him. But Jesus met him. Jesus, by grace, reached out to this man, Saul of Tarsus. And you remember the story. In Acts chapter 9, he's on the road to Damascus. He's on a mission to get more Christians from Damascus, bring them back to Jerusalem, put them in prison. And you remember, mid-daylight, right at noon, he's on, he's on that road, and a light brighter than the sun shines, blinds him, knocks him off his beast. There he is, flat on the ground. And a big booming voice Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you? And the answer comes, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul met Jesus, the one that he thought was dead. He thought the resurrection just legend, fairy tale. He was persecuting everyone that would believe such a thing. But he met the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus changed him. He took that monster, Saul of Tarsus, and transformed him. And it's so like God to take the worst case scenario, right? And turn it into the best case. From the chief persecutor of the church to the greatest propagator of the church that has ever lived. The greatest defender of the church. Saul became Paul. And over the next span of his life, well over 30 years, he changed everything. Paul the Apostle went on three missionary journeys over an 11-year period. He traveled more than 10,000 miles on foot, by ship, on beast. He led countless souls to Christ. He established 14 named local churches that we're aware of, but we know he established many others. He mentored and raised up hundreds of ministers He took the gospel to the Gentile world. He wrote 13 letters that made it into the New Testament. 14 letters, if you believe 
like I do, that he also wrote the book of Hebrews. Paul the Apostle testified before world powers, before emperors, before Herods. He took the gospel all over. He suffered greatly for Christ, and eventually he was martyred for Christ. An amazing transformation. And let me just tell you the operative word in the life of Paul the Apostle is grace. Grace. God's unmerited favor. Saul was literally playing for the wrong team and effective at it. He was going the wrong direction. He had no intention of turning to the Lord. He was on the highway to hell. And the Lord could have said, keep going. The Lord could have even said, you know what, I'm taking you out, buddy. But he didn't. Jesus rescued Saul. Jesus came for the monster. Took him. Saved him. Used him. He is one of the greatest illustrations of grace that you find in all of Scripture. And you know, when Saul met Jesus and when everything changed, everything changed for him in his spiritual thinking. You know, he was a guy who followed the law from birth. He was as religious as you get, thinking, oh, I'll be as religious as I can get and God will accept me and love me. He never found fulfillment in all of that religious activity. In fact, you could argue that All that law did was make him more of a monster in his attitude towards other people. Now, he he never found any satisfaction. It was when he met Jesus. It was when he experienced the grace of God. It was when he discovered that salvation does not come by my hard work by my religious activity. Salvation comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins and rose again. And when I place my faith and trust in him, he saves me, he forgives me, he fills me with his spirit, and he transforms me. That is the power of grace. This, my friends, is what drove Paul. This is what motivated him every day he got up. The grace of God. Even at the end of his life, in the last letter that he writes, he was enamored with the grace of God. He referred to himself. The greatest Christian who ever lived in all of church history, in my opinion. He referred to himself as the chief of all sinners. 
the chief of all sinners who was saved by grace. You see him speak about it even in all of his letters in, in, in this greeting. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, nor, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You see, that's Paul. I'm an apostle by God, not by man or through man. I was going the wrong way. Jesus saved me and made me his delegate. Enamored with it, motivated by it. The champion of the gospel of grace spent his whole ministry doing that. So, in A.D., right around 44 through 46 A.D., Paul was hanging out at the church in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit and the leadership of the church determined that he and Barnabas and John Mark should go on a missionary journey, and they went on their first missionary journey for about two years, And if you can kind of follow the blue line there, they left Antioch, they went through Cyprus, and they ended up in that green area region, which is what? That's Galatia. For two years, on Paul's first missionary journey, he spent most of his time in the southern region of Galatia. And he visited cities like Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. And he shared the gospel with those folks, and he planted local churches in those cities. Now, something really interesting happened with Paul on his first missionary journey. His strategy was whenever he went to a city, he would find a synagogue, start with the synagogue, and try to share the gospel with Jews. And he would do that, and and many times he would be very successful. There would be some Jews who would come to Christ. But eventually, a lot of the elitist Jews, just like he once was, all caught up in Judaism and the religion, they became hostile to Paul and hostile to his message. And and they would persecute him, kick him out of the cities. On this first missionary journey, he even gets stoned by some of the religious leaders. So what ends up happening is Gentiles begin flocking To the church. Non-Jewish people. He's thrown out of the synagogue. So he goes to the house of the Gentiles. And all of these non-Jewish. Gentile men and women. Are starting to get saved. And, and, And what is the message. That he preached. To them. Grace. Grace. Here in the greeting. He says to them, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. I mean, that, that's, he, he would go in, he would say, look, you don't get saved by any law, you get saved by grace. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again the third day. You place your faith and trust in him. You're changed. 
You become new. You become born again. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're saved. You're, you're free from any religious obligation. You enter into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It changes your life. He went and shared the message that changed his own life. And that's what he did in those beautiful churches in Galatia. He shared that message. Some Jews, mostly Gentiles, the local churches in those area explode. Think about it. In two years... Two years, multiple churches all across southern Galatia. It's a beautiful work. When people understand grace. Well, two years, two years after he wraps up his first missionary journey, he gets bad news. Look at verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Two years. Remember, he wrote this letter in, in 48 AD. He got off this first missionary journey, 44 to 46 AD. Within two years, the church is falling away. The church is turning away from the gospel of grace. Now, this is a very, very strong word. They're abandoning. They're turning their back. They're walking away from it. They're renouncing it. They're renouncing it. They're turning from the true gospel of grace and they're turning to a perverted gospel, a twisted gospel. Not any gospel at all. And it's not one church, it's all of those churches. Paul gets that information and he is horrified. He says, I marvel. How soon you've turned from the true gospel. I marvel how soon you've turned from him. He's angry. He's upset. In fact, in every letter written by Paul, in the very first part of the letter, he'll do a greeting and then he'll say what he's thankful for about that church. There's no niceties here. There's no, hey, I really thank the Lord. He just goes right into it. I marvel. How could you leave so soon? And they're absolutely deceived. Now, how did they get deceived? Troublemakers. False teachers. Wolves. Verse 6, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So you had false teachers coming into those churches in Galatia, teaching a different gospel, perverting the gospel of truth. 
And all of the Gentiles and the Jews that made up those local churches, all of them, were being deceived. Now, who were these teachers? We know exactly who these teachers were. They were very, very active in the very initial parts of church history when a lot of Christianity was among the Jewish people. These false teachers are called Judaizers, Judaizers. These were guys who wanted to continue propagating this idea that you need to stay under the law of Moses. So these were Jewish men, and it's very likely that they believed in Jesus. They, in the very least, were friendly to Jesus. They believed that you should place your faith in Jesus, many of them. Many of them may even have been born-again Christians. But being Jewish, they couldn't abandon their law. They couldn't abandon their mosaic system. They couldn't abandon all the traditions. They, they had to keep the temple. They had to keep the priesthood. They had to keep the kosher diet. They had to keep the rite of circumcision. They had to keep all of that. And so their teaching was... In order to get saved, it can't happen just through faith in Jesus, not by grace. In order to be saved, you can place your faith in Jesus, that's okay, but you also have to come under the law of Moses. So to the Jew, they would teach it's great. You've placed your faith in Jesus, now don't neglect the law. You keep that law. To the Gentile. And remember, all those Gentiles were coming to Christ. To the Gentile. You place your faith in Jesus. That's great. But you need to come into the Mosaic system. You need to come under that law. That means every Gentile man, no matter how old he was, had to be circumcised. They had to go to the kosher diet. They had to do all of the different sacrifices in the temple. They had to do all of these different things. In other words, you have to become Jewish. And Paul gets wind of that. And he writes. And he says, no. 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 A thousand times. No. Gentile, you do not have to become Jewish. You're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Jew, you don't have to keep hanging on to the law. You're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't live under law. You live under grace. Everything else is a perversion. In fact, very strong words in verse 8. He says, Even if we are an angel from heaven, Preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. Now, this is extremely strong language. What Paul is saying is, if somebody preaches any other gospel message than the gospel that is dependent upon grace, let them be accursed, anathema, under divine judgment, Not just discipline, 
Let them take their rightful place in the fires of hell. They are accursed. They are not to be. You will not follow them. They will destroy your life. And that's exactly what they were attempting to do with those local churches. What Paul did here in this early part of church history was so, so important for him to take this stand. Because these Judaizers were very active and they were going around following after Paul and putting legalistic traps back on these brand new Christians and absolutely destroying them. And, and in the early part of church history, there was a danger. The Christian faith could have become just one of the many sects, S-E-C-T-S, under Judaism. Under Judaism, you had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, Essenes, priesthood, zealots, and then believers in Jesus. And it could have become this thing where you just have another flavor of Judaism. Okay, receive Jesus, but you're also under the law of Judaism. Paul came along and said, no, absolutely not. There's a new thing going on. God is doing a new thing. It's called the church, and everybody a part of the church is saved by grace. The church is not a sect of Judaism. The church is different. It's brand new. It's filled with people who are spirit-filled, not under law. People whose lives have been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And we have, gang, listen, we have Paul the Apostle to be thankful for. The Lord using Paul to make sure. And he, he took a lot of heat. He suffered a lot. In verse 10, Paul says, For I do not persuade men. Do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Look, I don't persuade God. I persuade man. God has come up with the new rules. I'm not a man pleaser, Paul said. And he could have been. He could have said, you know what? Let's keep some Judaism. It's okay. Mix that up. He'd have been very popular with people. But he couldn't. He championed grace. And I'm so glad he did. I said that this letter is also urgent for today. It is. This is something that we have to deal with time and time and time again. Listen, there are many man-made religions out there. Muslims, Hindus, national Israel, religious Israel today. There are a lot of, quote-unquote, Christian denominations that have become nothing more than man-made religions. And the basic tenet of these things is there's human effort involved in salvation. No, there's not. 
If you're a Muslim, you keep the pillars. Give it effort. Hindus, they got their things to do. Jews, a lot of them are still doing their things, their works of the law. Effort, it's religion, man's effort to be saved. And Paul saying is, no, 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 no. It's by the grace of God that you're saved. And by the way, that is what separates the Christian faith from every other religion. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant man, and he was asked one day, what distinguishes the Christian faith from every other religion? Not resurrection. There are other religions that claim resurrection. Not the deity of Christ. There are other religions that claim a deity to their central figure. C.S. Lewis said, the biggest distinction of Christianity is grace. Everything else, everything else is your effort. You have to go through religious hoops. You have to earn your way. Christianity says, you can earn your way. Stop trying. Christ gave himself for your sins. He rose again. You place your faith in him. He saves you. He changes you from the inside out by the spirit. And you begin to live a different life that pleases God. Not in your own power. Not under law. But by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Christian faith. Now, you be careful. There are Christian denominations. There are Christians that say, in order for you to be saved... You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ and be baptized in water. Is that true? No. How are you saved? Through faith in Christ Jesus. Water baptism is something you do afterwards to show the world. There are, there are folks that would say, in order to be saved, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you take communion every week. You take mass. And if you do that, then you're going to be saved. Is that true? Absolutely not. Paul would say anathema. There are local churches in in local denominations that believe that they are the only one true church. And I've met people. It's almost like spiritual abuse. They've been told that if if, if you leave a certain local church, then you're going to go to hell. Because you've left a local church. You've left the tenants. That is spiritual abuse, man. That's about as ugly as it gets. And don't you dare get caught up in stuff like that. It's not by human effort. It's not by church membership. It's not by what you do for the church. It's not by how much you give to the church. It has nothing to do with that. Your salvation is completely dependent upon what Jesus Christ did for you at the cross. And when you place your faith and trust in him, he changes. Be weary. Beware of the many religious leaders out there that will teach this. And by the way, remember, as a born-again Christian, you know that you're saved By faith. By grace through faith. You've placed your faith in Christ and your sake. Listen, in in living the Christian life, you also live under grace. You are no longer under law. Do not allow anyone to bring you back under a law 
system. In the days of Paul, they were called Judaizers. Today, we would call them legalists. The Christian, he says, you want to live a powerful, awesome, fruitful Christian life? Well, then follow my religious rules. Get in line with me. No, you do not follow any law. You do not do anything as a Christian to try to earn favor with God. In Christ Jesus, you've received all the favor. You're a child of grace. Your motivation in living the Christian life is one of thanksgiving. And it's one of joy. Are there things for us to do as Christians? Absolutely. But we do them in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own rigid effort under a law. And we do them because we're thankful for what God has done. The law didn't save Saul of Tarsus. He would have always been Saul of Tarsus. Grace turned Saul of Tarsus into the Apostle Paul. And that's still how it works today. So don't forget it. Now there's something else I think that's really, that we see real evident in this discussion tonight. And man, it really is hard to leave a religious tradition. This was a hard thing in the early church. You can understand why these Jews, I mean, for 2,000 years they've been keeping this law, right? Do they abandon it? How hard is it? Uh, My mom did it. My grandmother did it. My great-great-grandmother did it. We, We were born and raised in this tradition, and you're asking me to walk away from it? And Paul said, yes. You're not under that. You're in a new system. How many people are born into a religion? Whether it be Hindu or Muslim or some rigid Christian denomination. And they're a part of some tradition. And a lot of times when you get to generation after generation after generation, you get to a generation that doesn't even know what they practice. It has no meaning. There's nothing there. And yet they say, I'm going to be that religion because my family's always been that way. Really? Really? Now, you need, you need to respond to the truth and receive Christ. And you say, well, but all my family's going to hate me if I leave my religion. Listen, don't fight with them on their religion. Give your life to Christ. Be changed. Let them see the new you. Let them see the transfer you. God will work all that out. It is the grace of God that Paul championed, that transforms. And I want to challenge you as Christians tonight. Remember God's grace every morning you wake up. Let that motivate you. Let that be what makes you most thankful in life and what makes you want to serve and bless and help others. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes.
Lord, I thank you for your grace. We're, we're helpless without it, Lord. Helpless. You've done all the work for salvation. And you did it because you loved us. Because you're a good and gracious king. Lord, protect us from letting anyone rob that from us. And I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ tonight. Lord, keep that front and center in our lives. And then with your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to just ask that question. Have you responded to the grace of God? You know, some might be here tonight and you might think, oh, Terry, you have no idea how bad I've been. I've been so ugly, I've blown it. Okay, maybe you were. Were you a monster like Saul of Tarsus? <laughs> God changed him. God forgave him. God transformed him. There is no pit too deep which God can't reach into. I promise you, he can forgive you. He died on the cross for your sins and he rose again that third day. And he's a good and gracious king and he will save you and change you and transform you. Open your heart to him. Or maybe you're here tonight and you've been holding on to this religion. Please understand, you can't be saved by any religious effort. You cannot be saved by any human effort. It does not work. Take it from Paul, the most religious man who ever lived, and it only made him miserable. You need relationship with God through Jesus, who died on the cross for you. Believe me, Jesus did not die to start a new religion. He died to save us, to clean us up, to give us an opportunity to be rightly related to him, members of his family, born again, saved, filled with his spirit. Have you done that? Have you received him? I want you to have an opportunity tonight, if that's you. If you've never done that, say, Lord Jesus, thank you for just making it simple for us to understand. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And I thank you for dying on the cross personally for my sins. Wash them away. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I come into your grace. Change me, transform me. Give me your joy. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to walk with you and follow you in a beautiful way. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.